KP, KPC, News, Information, Culture, KPCC, California Sensibility. Come on. Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you Hey, I'm Amy Choi. And I'm Rebecca Lair, and we are the Mashup Americans. Uh, so, real talk, we like to discuss sex and relationships a lot at Mashup HQ. <laughs> yeah, because that's a big part of life. Hello. <laughs> we talk a lot about it. But also, it's just like kind of the ultimate mashup. <laughs> Sorry to get gross, guys, but it is. Also, warning, do not go to mashup.com. It's NSFW. We tried to get that URL. <laughs> it's a little intense. Um, uh, that was not for us. But we will say, you know, as far as looking at sex through a mashup lens, there's a lot to unpack there because there's so many cultural norms around sex that are part of pop culture, that are part of like everyday conversations. Like, what is considered sexy? Um, who gets to be sexy? Like, what behaviors are considered to be sexually correct versus sexually deviant? And all of that stuff is colored by our own kind of cultural perceptions and our own worldview. Right. And sometimes there's kind of a tension between the one that's within your home as a mashup or growing up and the, the world around you, because we're picking all these things up in the ether from our communities, from pop culture. Your adolescent brain is trying to put them together <laughs> and then somehow that sticks with you forever. So like these stereotypes and ideas are created and we don't even know that we've taken them on. That's crazy, right? Like, can you imagine if I had somehow become entrenched with the idea of the submissive Asian lady? No, that doesn't help. Oh my gosh, Memoirs of a Geisha Part (laughs) 2. That's so sad. Um, So we're super excited about our guest today, Esther Perel. She is a world-renowned psychotherapist and one of the foremost researchers on sex and relationships. Uh, You've probably heard her name from her million times viewed TED Talk, her many, many articles, or her blockbuster book, which launched her into fame, Mating in Captivity, Unlocking Erotic Intelligence, which uh, I would like to unlock my erotic intelligence. Uh, who wouldn't mm. unlock mine too, girl? <laughs> I'll get you a key. I want to be intelligently erotic. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's a one way to be erotic. How many times do you think we're going to giggle throughout the course of this episode? You know what? As empowered as we are, it's still giggling. It's just talking about sex is funny. I'm glad. I'm glad we're all there. Um, (laughs) I hope Esther is there with us, too. I think she will be, because Esther is also a total mashup. I mean, her parents are Holocaust survivors. She grew up in Belgium. She went to school in Jerusalem. She now lives in New York City with her American-born kids, and she's going to come visit our studios in New York. And I have so many questions. I'm so pumped. Rebecca, you can't be there for the interview, but is there anything that I definitely have to ask her for you? Well, I have a million private questions that we'll make anonymous, <laughs> but some mashy questions I have about sex and culture. Probably the biggest one is like, how entrenched are people's conceptions about sexuality and culture and that kind of overlap? Like mm. this idea of the quote unquote spicy Latina. And as a psychotherapist, how does she see that affecting individual relationships? If you or in a relationship with the spicy Latina, are you projecting onto that? Like, uh, how, how do you unwrap that and, and, and dive into it and help people understand that? That is such a good one. I'm definitely, definitely asking for that. Okay. Let's talk to Estes. Oh. Ladies, all the ladies, now, help me out. Come on, all the ladies. Let's talk about 
So Esther, thank you so much for being here. We are so excited to have you. It's my pleasure. Esther, how do you mash up? I am Flemish-Belgian, but in fact, a Jew from Flemish-Belgium with Polish parents who were illegal refugees for five years in Belgium. I then have lived in Israel for six years, and so I would add Belgian with a touch of Israel and then with a big touch of the northeast of America, particularly Boston and Manhattan. Boston, well, that is Cambridge. <laughs> quite a mashup. Um, how many languages do you speak? I speak nine languages. Nine. Um, how well do you speak them? I work in seven. I lecture in seven. I do therapy in seven. I teach in seven. So oh, wait, wait, seven. What are your seven? I work in English, in French, in Hebrew, in Dutch, in Spanish, in Portuguese, in German. What's your favorite swear word? Merde. What is your favorite language to... Shred somebody. Now, the best language to shred someone or to describe someone with which in one word you can capture the entire personality of a person is Yiddish. Really? It is. There is no more juicier, funny language. What's and, your favorite Yiddish word? Oh, God. I think there is no language that has more words for penis <laughs> and small ones, for that matter, than, than Yiddish. It's a, it, it has a quantity of sh words. And all this sh is generally a, a, a diminutive that is very soft and tender. But with that sh, you have the words that talk about somebody being a schmuck and a schlemazel and a schlemiel. It's either an idiot or an asshole. It, they all start with that sh sound. Where do you feel most at home? I feel at home where I have people I love. I never had one address. I have lived on a triangle and even sometimes on a square. Um, the day I stopped trying to belong to one place, I found my identity, which was that I have multiple belongings, and I love the feeling of landing in any of them, taking out my local phone, changing the SIM card, mm -hmm. and feeling like I'm part of that place as well. And that seamlessness is actually my home. Did you meet your partner here? Yes, in Boston. In Boston. Does he share any of your mashup? Oh, no, no. I am married with an all-American <laughs> Southern <laughs> Jew who speaks only English. My kids speak three or four. It's a, it's, it's a joke. He learns one word, he forgets two. Every day on Facebook, we are starting conversations centered on the hilarious, head-scratching, and deeply personal experience of navigating our hybrid cultures and identities. Join us at Facebook.com slash MashupAmericans. What are the most common conflicts that you see in mashup couples? Is there a common thread that you see? with, you know, families and couples that are coming to you saying, this is our problem. Yes, but what they say is the problem is not necessarily the way I would translate it. I think people typically define problems by the topic. We have differences in the way we deal with money. We have differences. Yesterday I had a couple and, you know, his parents came from Greece and they were going to stay for a month. And she's English and she says the notion of my parents coming and visiting and staying with us for a month is utterly unheard of. Mm -hmm. and, uh, there are other cultures where a month is not at all that long. It's two <laughs> or three. <laughs> the if first time my parents stayed with us in our 700 square foot apartment for yeah. two weeks, my husband was like, 
you're so lucky that I love you so much. Right. So this is a classic, <laughs> right. right? But the, the, this is a, one feature of the whole relationship to parents and extended families. Some people will talk about the relationship to the elderly. Some people, it's really fundamentally, how, what is the, space, the place of the individual? Is a marriage between two people or between two families? Mm-hmm. Is a marriage a place from where I seek happiness? Or is the marriage the place that gives me the basis where I can go and find my happiness elsewhere? Is the meaning of happiness even relevant as part of the adult intimate relationship? Is, is the intimacy a central feature of the marriage or is it a byproduct? Right. There's lots of other reasons you marry. And if you have a good intimacy and a love story and a sexual connection and all of that, that's plus. But that's not why you do it and who you do it with and what you hope to experience. Mm-hmm. I think that the difference in interracial, intercultural, interreligious, international couples, that's probably the basic couple. But then you have also, you know, the gender, mm-hmm. the orientation. The biggest difference are... I would line up on the continuum between cultures that are more individualistic and cultures that are more collectivist. Mm -hmm. That gives you a very different sense of the person in the world. Right. And that person that comes from a more collectivist society where the self is embedded as part of a whole and where you're not raised to find out, you know, with the way we do in the West, you know, and tell a little one, use your words and tell me what you need. Mm -hmm. Tell me what you want. No, in many cultures, you're not raising for autonomy and agency. You raise for loyalty. Hmm. And when you raise for loyalty, you don't ask the child to learn to say what they need. You raise the child to intuit what other people need from them. Right. Now, that is a fundamental difference of how you then place yourself in the world later on. And I think what's interesting is that, well, at least in my my life, both my husband and I come from collective. Correct. uh, But we were raised to be autonomous. So that tension, I think, in us, in each of us personally, and then what we bring that to our marriage. And I say those phrases, tell me what you need. Use your words to my three-year-old son all the time. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about sex. So how does that, the idea of thinking about yourself as part of a a collective versus thinking of yourself as part, as an individual, how does that affect how we view sex? That's a huge one, and I'm very glad you're asking. I'm going to give you a frame first. Understand that sexuality, I prefer to talk about sexuality than sex, is probably one of the most powerful revealing windows through which to understand the most archaic, rooted, traditional aspect of a society, and also on the other side, the most radical, progressive changes in a society. How a society deals with the body, with nudity, with exposure, with dress code, with women's hair, with, the, with sexual information, with who owns the sexuality of children, etc., etc., all of that goes through that window. Mm. So the same thing is true for a family. You want to understand a family, the sexual lens is a powerful lens. You want to understand a couple and you want to understand an individual. Because sexuality is so all-encompassing that by asking you to tell me about your sexuality, I know your relationship to so many things. In particular, is sex for you still part of a reproductive system Uh in which there are two things. One is procreation, (laughs) but that is the majority of the world does not think like that. 
And what is very interesting is that you may be living in the West and you may have acculturated in all kinds of ways. If there is a place where the archaic belief system really sticks more than anything else, it is around sexuality. Mm. That is the thing that has the mo- that is the slowest to actually un- undo itself. So is sex a marital duty? Do you ever talk about your sexual needs or preferences or pains or dislikes? Do you believe that it's something you have to do for him because he needs it because that's how you keep him home? I was in Argentina last week. I mean, it's not like you have to go, you know, very far. <laughs> right. These ideas are very, very rooted. Do you talk about sexuality? Or is it hidden? It is dirty, but save it for the one you love. Or you talk about the dangers and the disease, you know, or do you actually have it as an integrated part of the conversation in which you basically don't talk about sex, you talk about connection, about liking, about touch, about Mm -hmm. feeling good, kissing, you know, I can't even tell you how many supposedly emancipated women are continuing to fake it are continuing to do it just because it's her job to do it, mm-hmm. because she needs to make sure that he is okay. Don't enjoy it and never tell you why and what they would prefer because most of the time they don't even know. And hide it if it's not good and hide it if they've gone elsewhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, they hide it on all right. fronts, right? How many men uh, are suspicious of a woman who enjoys sex? Because if she's liking it and if she comes up with any idea of her own, she must have learned it somewhere else if it didn't come from uh-huh. him. Okay, donde lo aprendiste, as they can tell you very well in, the, in Spanish. Um, how many women have lived with a double standard? You know, the idea that men need it and men are natural roamers. Uh, I mean, sexism, sexual stereotypes, double standards, all of those things are directly channeled into our attitudes, beliefs around sexuality. It's, it's, uh, and it stays. It's, uh, it doesn't matter. You can right. be the director of a school, the most enlightened thing professionally. There's something about those beliefs that really stick to us despite it all. Is there a unique American sexuality? Oh, yes. But it's not American as in because America is not one thing, but there is a dominant culture. There is an aura. There is a certain kind of a message. You know, there is in America a puritanical streak. And the puritanism of America is not that it is anti-sex or anything like that only. It is a, a troubled attitude with pleasure. America likes production, productivity. It is a reason that it is a highly achieving country that is pragmatic, that likes to get to the point and don't beat around the bush and get it done fast. And it takes that pragmatism and applies it to, ero- to eroticism. That is the, <laughs> Those are the, two things which maybe should they? never be no, overlapping. No, no, it's hedonism and puritanism <laughs> right. that collide. Pleasure has to have a function here. It is good for the senses. It is good for motor development. It is good for the skin. It is good for your health. It must be good for something to justify itself. The lack of productivity, the erotic as cultivating pleasure for its own sake, be it lying in the sun, just reading a book, making love, Pleasure for its own sake is an un-American idea. If it's not either financially rewarding or healthy rewarding, 
then it doesn't really have enough of a purpose. And that is a fundamental difference. We, at many other parts of the world, cultivate pleasure for the pleasure right. of it. There's no other reason. It's right. totally unproductive. And sex is unproductive when there is no repro reproduction in, in, intended. It is only for connection and pleasure. Mm -hmm. That is fundamentally American. The application of, of pragmatism to eroticism. Well, that's such an ugly word to think about sex with pragmatism. <laughs> Even the but, sound of the and words the coming out of my mouth. About that, yes. the, the, how often do you do it? How long? How right. hard? If I'm you a, have statistics. sex four times a month, then you'll be happier. Yes, it's versus, statistics. Mm -hmm. You know, it's what you can measure. The fact that sexuality is not always done through the act, that it has nothing to do with measuring orgasms, that it is a, a, an, exp an experience a con of, a, of a connection, a qualitative thing, um, that may or may not sometimes result in the act of lovemaking itself. Americans don't flirt. I can tell you that. When I say Americans don't flirt, what I will say is this. There is not a foreigner you will meet who hasn't at some point made that comment. Now, why don't they flirt? Because they score. To flirt is to play with the sword. It's the tip of the sword, mm -hmm. the fleuret. It's teasing. It's playing with possibility. It has nothing to do with getting anything. It has to do with fantasy and imagination. Right. Scoring game. is getting it. So Americans don't flirt. They score. They do the job in order to get something. It's a part of the same achievement-oriented mm -hmm. mentality applied to eroticism. So when I say Americans, <laughs> it's the collection of 30 years of listening to foreigners from all over the world. That's the interesting part. It's right. not that they have to be French or Brazilian or right. from all over the world. What they observe when they describe America, this is going to be one of those concepts. And in a multicultural society, this is a, you know, Rebecca and I have been hashing in the house. We wanted to ask you this very specifically is that when we come from a place where we're exposed to all these different cultures, and yes, we're all American, right? We're all here, at least. We're physically here. You're, you come also with perceptions of other, other cultures' sexuality, right? So the idea of like a spicy Latina or a, you know, subservient Asian woman mm -hmm. or, what, you know, dominant or a macho man, you know, that those, those stereotypes come affiliated with different cultures as well. What happens in a relationship when, when two people are in that and you're like, oh, that's actually not true? Or how, how does a couple navigate through their own preconceptions of somebody else's sexuality? A lot of that living together is a process of dissolving your own prejudices. It's not because you live with someone else that you didn't come with a long list of stereotypes and prejudices as well. Right. Um, and the degree to which you're willing to let go of that is actually part of the success of the relationship, is that you begin to notice nuance, stuff that isn't black and white, people who are hybrids, people who actually are filled with contradictions and love them. Right. <laughs> Today this, tomorrow that, yesterday was like that, you know, well, you shouldn't think that that's what I always want. Right. Right. <laughs> I wanted it because right. I was there with those people at that time. And it demands tremendous flexibility, and some people relish that. Right. Because... It just makes them feel like no two days are the same in life, and that's how they like to live. And for others, it is debilitating because they like structure. And if you really like structure, then you may not be the best candidate for going across the cultural divide. Right. Can we talk about fetishes and cultural fetishes? Yes. My rule since midway through college was I will only ever be somebody's first Asian. 
<laughs> Thank you. Very good. Thank Very you. Good. So as an Asian woman, I think Asian daters are gross. I'll just say it out there. And there is just there are too many typically white men who are like, mm, every single woman that they've dated, had a casual relationship with, anything is Asian. And they're like, oh, but what is that? It doesn't mean anything. I have no racial or ethnic expectations. And I'm like, you're A, you're lying, or you're the most uncurious person who has never examined your thinking ever in your life. But I'll only ever be somebody's first Asian. How did those sorts of fixations and fetishes even develop? What does that mean for that person that has it? And I'm not only talking about Asian daters here, but, you know, kind of cultural fetishes in general. And also, how can a genuine relationship survive that? I do believe that, you know, a man who, for example, has only ever dated Asian people, that he could find an, an Asian woman that, like, they genuinely are a match for each other. But she has to face the knowledge of the fact that she's his 10th Asian girlfriend. A, how do fetishes develop? And B, how do you move beyond that into being able to see the whole person and being not the fetish anymore? Look, I think one of the first jobs I did, it's a bit of a roundabout answer, but that's how it presented itself, as you were asking. I arrived in New York in 84. I began working at the 92nd Street Y about 86 at a time when there was an amazing cultural coup occurring in America around mating on the part of the Jews. The Jewish community, who had been a completely endogamous community that married only Jews, was in a matter of 15 years gone up from 5 to 50 percent of intermarriage. And that is, an, that is a culturally curious phenomenon. Mm -hmm. In the West Coast, they married Asian. In the East Coast, they married a host of other things, mm -hmm. including Asian, but it was more mixed. Why? Why were these people that before, not that long ago, people wanted to get rid of them, mm -hmm. suddenly attractive, and not just as business partners, but as romantic partners? Mm -hmm. What was it that people saw on them? And by the way, what was it that people saw in these men and women? First, always men, because men intermarry first in cultural acculturation, then come the women. 10, 15 years later. And why was it that the very things that were attractive cross-culturally were the things that intraculturally were often the source of rejection? Huh. That is the thing that really becomes important. You understand? The very attributes that made be inside the group people not want each other when they were in a different complementarity with somebody different, it became actually what's what, what was the biggest draw. And... It was filled with prejudices or stereotypes. And these stereotypes are fed by literature, by history, by movies, and by cultural emphasis. Mm -hmm. It is true that sports was never something that was really highly developed among Jewish people. That is not where they saw physical prowesses was not an attribute that was highly valued for all kinds of cultural, historical, finance. So what was highly valued was an intellect and an, and an introvertedness and, a, and an ability to have insight and look inwardly, which when modern psychology and the 60s movement arrived, suddenly there was a good fit. Mm. And ambition on the part of women suddenly was a good fit because here came this group of women who had, until they arrived to this country, been, the, you know, the ones doing the market and this and that. And this 
was happening on every front. What were the Jews and the Asians had a few things in common around education. The Jews and the Italian had a few things in common around family, actually, with the Asian family. And when I say Asian, it, that's already right. in itself. There's a continent. A complicated. <laughs> I'm sorry to do this. It's like, I, it's like you, you, you're bound by generalities the minute you hear you say it, and you're like, oh, but that would be an hour of a... Uh, African-Americans, there was something very particular. They understood oppression. They understood, you know, trauma. They understood exclusion and all of that. And everybody projected complementarity. What is it that we share and what is it where you can complete me? Mm. That you have that me and me being me from my culture, me from my background doesn't have. Right. And once you eroticize that, because you need to eroticize it, otherwise you don't want to marry those people. Right. It's not sexy to think about education. It's not sexy to think about education unless you say one of the things that really draws me to people is their mind. I'm turned on by someone's mind. Right. Now you've eroticized education. What makes me fall in love with you does need that glue, and that glue is the erotization of the difference. The human mind is such that it can take anything and turn it into a source of pleasure and a turn-on. That is the definition of a fetish. This helmet could become eroticized. My bike helmet right here next to me. Anything can become eroticized, and that is the definition of fetishization. So you do it on a large scale with the culture, and you do it with the details of that culture. Mm -hmm. I'm turned on by that. You know, those eyes of yours, you know, the, that shape. Esther is making an Asian <laughs> eye shape right now. Thank you. I do think my eyes are beautiful. You know, the <laughs> fact that you have that ageless face, right? It's very difficult to know the age of many Asian people. Mm -hmm. They remained kind of this very, very youthful thing. If you skincare. <laughs> <laughs> it's the magic of the Orient, guys. <laughs> and now let's go into Orientalism. <laughs> Get up. 23 positions in a one-night stand. Get up. I'll only call you after if you say I can. Did you know that we have a newsletter? Mm, yeah, we do, and it's awesome. Every week, we serve up a curated list of the most mashy and interesting stories from around the world. Sign up now at mashupamericans.com slash newsletter. A great question from one of our listeners, Sophia, who would like to know, can you talk a little bit about the phenomenon of too much focus on equality in American culture? Does that mutate the power dynamics between men and women, often leading to boredom? Like, is there something about our our American idea of men and women are the same or perfectly equal that negatively affects our sexuality or the enjoyment of our I know our the sex? question. I know the question. It's a very, very important question. America is still the only Western country where maternity leave is a disability leave and where feminism was predicated on the notion that we are the same rather than we are different, but we need the same opportunities. That created a very different kind of European feminism, for at least. So uh, equality and sameness is a mistake. Equality is one thing. Sameness is something else. Mm -hmm. When you talk about equality inside a family, you want a sense of respect, of dignity, um, of a kind of role distribution in which there isn't an oppressive system with people who have no choice. 
That's the concept of equality. It's not I do the garbage, you do the dishes, and we share those tasks. Mm -hmm. The fact is that what works really well in the kitchen and the teamwork and the interchangeability of roles around diaper changing, house chores, etc., etc., is very good for the teamwork of parenting. Right. But parenting and being lovers is two different programs. Thank you. Welcome to my life. Two different programs. (laughs) Yes. If we want desire-filled relationships in a home where we also want that kind of good teamwork, we need to be able to straddle different cultures inside the house, the parental culture and the lover's culture. And they have different rules and they have different rituals and they have different agreements. I went to Denmark which is probably the most equal society you can find at this point. And I couldn't understand, since Denmark does not struggle with all the stresses of American marriage, part of the struggle was that they are utterly bored. They have a super high rate of divorce and super high rate of infidelity. What became clear is that the high investment parenting and the equality is such that the people become completely parentified inside their home and when they want to connect to their erotic selves or when they want to connect to the feminine or the masculine in them, which doesn't just mean the woman or the man, these attributes can exist in everyone, they actually need to do it with someone that they're not co-parenting with. If you're going to apply the rules of good citizenship to sex, you're not going to have a lot of good fun. No. (laughs) Well, Esther, how do we have the best sex of our lives. What is good sex, okay? Good sex is is something that you anticipate, that you look forward to, like anything else that is pleasurable. You you anticipate it. And anticipation is one of the greatest human qualities. We have the ability to throw ourselves into a reality before it has even happened. We do it when we travel. We do it when we're looking forward to going to a restaurant, to going to a concert. That, looking forward, that anticipation is the mortar of desire. That allows us to feel like there is still something we'll discover. We're going to experience that we don't know in advance, that it's not a foregone conclusion, that it is not about getting the job done. Sex is not something you do. Sex is a place you go inside yourself and with another or others. It's that concept. Which part of you do you connect with there? And I think as a whole... um, Breaking the rules, breaking your own rules. The rules is not big things. The rules may be that instead of being at work this morning at 8 o'clock, you decided to take a couple more hours at home and not because you had a headache. It's small breaking the rules. The rules about how you show up, that you're not going to do the same old, same old because it works. To have good sex long term is about your ability to create an environment that is safe enough. And then within that environment, you actually take a lot of risks and you're not afraid to to fall and then take another risk again. If you want to just play it safe, then you have workable sex sometimes, but not necessarily what you consider good sex. Okay. Well, on that note, no more workable sex. Great rule-breaking sex for everybody. Thank you so much, Esther. My pleasure. That was Esther Perel, author of Mating in Captivity and expert in all things sex. 
You can buy her book anywhere you buy books and find her on the socials at Esther Perel. Uh, I think I need to just like, I don't know, sit down and take a cold shot. I don't know. I, I learned yeah. so much and I'm feeling so sexy. Fan it off, girl. Fan it <laughs> off. <laughs> I mean, that's the goal at Mashup HQ. Feeling sexy and yeah. uh, operating at peak sexiness at all times. Oh, my God. Peak <laughs> sexy. And all of our listeners are peak sexy. We know it. And we want to hear from you. Um, Come join the conversation at Facebook.com slash Mashup Americans. Tell us what you think about the episode. Tell us what you think about your sexiness. I don't know. Just talk to us. We love it. Yep. Let's do it. The Mashup Americans are me, Rebecca Lehrer. And me, Amy Choi. Our producer today was Jocelyn Gonzalez, and our show is produced by American Public Media and Southern California Public Radio, KPCC. We're also supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts on the web at arts.gov. Ciao. Bye. Bye.